This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. Today we sit down with Sheila Vimu and talk about microbes, Borneo mud, and antibiotic resistance, and find out why Southeast Asia is one of the top biodiversity hotspots in the world. So welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in the studio is uh, Sheila Vimu. Sheila, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, great to to have you here. Sheila is is a professor at Wabonzi College, Community College in the Department of Biology there. Um, she's got, uh, she's got her good Chicago bona fides, uh, with the, uh, Chicago medical school PhD. And, um, yeah, we're happy to have you come and, uh, talk to us about, uh, microbes, Borneo mud and antibiotic resistance. Uh, so again, thanks for making the trek. Thank you. So let's get it, let's get it started, uh, Talk to me like I'm not a scientist, and I'm not a scientist. Uh, <laughs> I think I know what an antibiotic is, but what is an antibiotic? Okay, so if you look at the word antibiotic, you can split it up into two. One is biotic. Biotic means bios. Bios means life. Life, okay. Right? That. So that's right. biology. Anti means opposite. So you wonder, what is opposite? So here, antibiotic is made by an organism. So we talk about a microbe. So the microbe is live. And this microbe makes this organ, this product. And that product has the ability to kill another microbe or a fungus. So it can be antibacterial or it can be antifungal in nature. That's an antibiotic. And that's the prescription drug that you can get from the doctor's office. Right. And these, these became important, obviously, um, uh, give us give us a give us a quick flyover of what life was like before and after antibiotics. So life before antibiotics would be if you were probably leaning up up the ladder trying to paint your home, and you just fell down and you broke your limb or you got a scratch on the shingles or whatever. Those wounds would get infected with maybe an organism, and I sort of want to bring up a name so that you get used to it, and that's called staph. So we, the staff the staph would, infection, staph infection yeah. and that would sort of grow on the wound. And they would grow so much that they would sort of percolate into your blood vessels, into your capillaries. And very quickly, it's possible that you could be dead. From a, from a, from a, a normal, just a catching your, you know, a nail in your, in your foot or something. Right. Something very simple. But as soon as antibiotics came in, now you can apply that or take it orally. So it can be a topical ointment, which we are all used to using. Or you can take it orally, and now you can go fight these staph microbes. And in that fight, the antibiotic is more in number than the staph. So here we go, win-win situation. So the antibiotic wins, and you survive. And uh, one one really compelling story you told was about um, vancomycin and uh, Borneo mud. So um, uh, tell us about uh, Borneo mud. So the word Borneo mud comes from, because technically it's exactly what the word says. 
This is a mud in Borneo. But where is this mud in Borneo? It's under those forest floors. And where in the forest floor is it? It's in a bug called Streptomyces. So Streptomyces is the microbe. You, when you say a bug, like an insect? Yeah, it's no, it's a microbe. Okay, microbe, okay. Yeah. So we call microbes also as bugs. But we are talking in terms of microbe called Streptomyces. And that Streptomyces makes a product. And it's not making it so that it can secrete it to the world and make money. That microbe is making that product so that it can fight evolutionary pathways and its own pathogens and, and sort of help its survival. And that product is vancomycin. So a missionary actually found this in the muds of Borneo, found it. He was a little bit sick, and then he found this, and he said, hey, if I apply this Borneo mud on my skin, and I'm able to prevent some of this infection. So possibly there's something good in here. Did he, and did he learn that from... Uh, the indigenous, uh, uh, maybe Iban or Dayak or Dayak, Dayak okay. tribes. So, so he, so, so they they showed him this, and then he did it, and was like, wow. Uh, and then he sent it to his um, friend at that time in Eli Lilly, who was an organic chemist, and said, "Hey, what is in this that makes this happen?" And being a chemist that he did, he found out that this had antimicrobial properties. And that's the beginning of vancomycin. And what surprised the organic chemist in 1950 in Eli Lilly was, not only is it um, antimicrobial, but it's also antifungal. So now if you have athlete's foot, which is a fungal problem, you, antifungal drugs can be used. But not that vancomycin is used for that, but just giving you an example. So it, it, fights, it fights all of them. Um, and so, so, yeah, so this... Uh uh, Borneo, which our listeners should know, but uh, is you know shared the massive island in Southeast Asia, shared by Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, and Brunei. Um, it's this it's this massive um, potential home to uh, uh, all kinds of who knows what other vancomycins or mm-hmm. or or, or uh, drugs we haven't even thought of. So it, it's is it uh, is it to put it on on par with the Amazon in terms mm-hmm. of the the ethnopharmacological potential? Absolutely. There is a spot in Borneo, the Sabah, which is the lost world, as I was talking about, and it's a basin that got 10 to 12 floors of forest forestry of different kinds of forest, starting from oh. vegetation all the way up to the top forest trees. So remote, un, undisturbed? Uh, undisturbed. People have not been there for long periods of time. Even uh, 30% is only explored. The other 70 is unexplored. You cannot go in there unless you have some kind of a permit, and they're waiting for UNESCO to make it a heritage site. So here it is. It's the most pristine rainforest in the world, and it's got animals such as the flying frog, a spider that looks that has a face of a bison, Wow. So it's got all these new, very, very different kind of animals that you would as a kid think about. And you say, hey, what if this world was like this? What would I see it as? So it, it has its own kind of isolated evolutionary kind of history. And maybe because of that, uh, a whole new set of potential remedies mm-hmm. and, um, and, and drugs that we've, we've never even conceived of. Uh, how about the you, – you brought up vancomycin um, – uh, 
I guess we already had we already had penicillin, so why did we need vancomycin? So when penicillin came into the market, it was first put into clinical trials because that was the beginning of World War II. And it did very good effects. The efficacy was excellent because here was a drug that was able to kill most of the staph infections, which was one of the reasons why the soldiers were suffering in war. So penicillin became very famous. And without understanding the dimensions of how antibiotic resistance can ever happen, it was overprescribed, overused very quickly. In probably a yeah. few years, there was methicillin-resistant staph aureus. So now another product called methicillin, which is very similar to penicillin in structure, was came about. And now we had staph, which is the microbe, resistant to even methicillin in 10 years. Well, so I guess you're saying that, uh, so, so what's happening? The, these, these, uh, these staff is finding ways to beat the, uh, it's, it's evolving? Mm-hmm. The, the staff evolves and these microbes have this great potential to get this antibiotic resistance. And they do that due to horizontal gene transfer. This is a very interesting science concept. They do it through transduction, they do it through conjugation, and they do it through transfection. All of these methods are used by which they are able to transfer the genetic material to the other microbe. So if you think of antibiotic resistance and say, okay, there's 100 microbes in me that are pathogens, and here I take a microbial antimicrobial drug. In a few minutes, 99 of them is possible that they're dead, but this one isolated microbe has this ability to acquire, in fact, it's antimicrobial resistance. And, and it's that, that one that survives yes. that, that is the dangerous one. Yes. And, and I guess it, when it learns to replicate it or when it replicates itself, when it then, then... It becomes its own population of resistance. For which the next... Penicillin, vancomycin have to be found yes. that can that can that can attack it. Correct. Um, so uh, I don't think you were being unintentionally dark uh, in in your lecture, but uh, give us a sense of of what we think the our timeline is for um, antimicrobial resistance. Like what? How how much longer do we have until the drugs that we have available are no longer effective? If we listen and we look around and we look at some of the research, they're saying if we continue to forage it the way that we are doing right now and keep looking for antibiotics and overprescription and overusage, it's possible another 20, 30 years. But at the same time, the awareness of antibiotics and its use has increased tremendously in the last five years. Pediatrics and um, food industry all need to come hand in hand because it's also the antibiotic resistance starts from the food industry as well. It's these animals who are raised Mm. for food, for their meat, are also given antibiotics so that they wouldn't get sick. So their meat products and their secretions such as milk also has antibiotics secreted in it. So we are also creating antibiotic resistance through that piece as well. So you're saying you're saying in the in even in the food we we eat even if you're not taking a prescription um, antibiotic you're still uh, the 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 food stuff is is filled with it. That's why you see this. Yeah, you see these packages that say antibiotic free 
chicken, antibiotic-free cattle. Yeah. Okay. Well, so so what you're saying is, <laughs> we we need to go and figure out and find um, the next one, the next uh, the next antibiotics. Um, you you pointed towards deforestation. What are what are the effects of of deforestation on this biodiversity problem? Deforestation for economic development, such as in Borneo, for timber and palm oil and all of those rubber, they have to cut down these trees and these forests without giving a chance for these microbes that are actually dwelling in the forest floor. So the more soil erosion that we see, the more deforestation that we see, the more paving of new land and practices for villages and um, industrialization, the forest-dwelling microbes are going to thin down. So our hunt for new microbes is going to lessen, and our speed at which we are going to find new ones is also going to decrease tremendously because most of them are in the plant products. And in this case, microbes in the forest floor. Which which is a nice transition to... Uh, maybe a, a better future or a better way forward uh, in terms of preserving the forest for the purpose of uh, ethnopharmacology. I guess, what is ethnopharmacology? And tell us a bit about maybe its potential. Ethnopharmacology is a new upcoming field. It's been there for probably 50, 60 years. There have been many papers from 1950s and 60s talking about ethnopharmacology. But recently, we have seen that it's a definition of a way in which sustainable practices that are socio-culturally equitable, at the same time, they're keepers of the true knowledge for the indigenous species, as well as in the locality in which those forests are, and maintaining the Western medicine efficacy of making sure that these medications have the right potential and the right therapeutic ideas. So it's sort of like a mixture of many different areas. And this is where ethnopharmacology can actually drive sustainable practices for the future. Some of the, some of the themes that are implicit in ethnopharmacology are sort of sustainable kind of um, harvest, um, uh, equitable transfer of knowledge. Uh, what, is, what, is, what does that mean? Equitable transfer of knowledge would mean that if there is a folklore or a traditional medicine idea in that community, and if that can be replicated in a pharmaceutical environment with Western medicine for efficacy and therapeutic potential, why not give that community an opportunity to create their own economic development using that with preserving the biodiversity? So it's making sure that the people, the practices, and the nature are all part of this equation, and it is not just about one person getting the best of the world. So it sounds like uh, a an, an ethical science is being is being implied. Is that too too mm-hmm. much of a stretch? Yes, it is ethical science. Does that does that mean? What would an example be? Like, would it be sharing the patents? Uh, would it be what would what would uh, in a perfect world, uh, in you or, or other scientists go into to, to Borneo and 
and maybe find the next uh, vancomycin um uh kind of speculate here what what would what would the what would the next phases look like if it was done well in an ethopharmacological environment first would be to make sure that the indigenous practices are given their true worth and they're recognized not just in terms of saying a good job but in recognized in terms of publications and because all these years for centuries in history all these traditions have been oral or through yeah. observation these were the only two methods in which they were transferred but recently we have this ability to write and because we can actually write we can actually not only write them get it published for the world to see it and at the same time take these patents and make sure that their community also prospers without losing the biodiversity so in the in your maybe in the borneo mud example it's that that this missionary is 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 treated through the 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 local science of learned experience by uh, indigenous peoples and then uh when when something is sort of patented that they're given uh they're 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 co-authors uh-huh. through the, their own those those oral traditions are that that through thousands of years of trial and error uh accidents and and uh ingenuity uh figured out that these forest products um have these medical advantages mm-hmm. so i guess you're saying that 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 is recognized as a kind of a science mm-hmm. and is put on par with the yes. Um, with Western medicine. So these kind of stories and these kind of uh, information that's been passed on for centuries should be part of the pharmacohistoria. They should be, and those should be given importance rather than just like, oh, this is a nice story to tell to engage the public, but the real science is the efficacy mm. and the therapeutic potential. Yeah, because it struck me that the a lot of the R&D is done by by these in, by these indigenous groups over over millennia mm-hmm. like that that they're they're doing the the they're doing the science um you know if you have a more expansive view of it and uh um there must be there must be some some challenges uh however so i guess one of them is that uh i guess that um if you share a patent you're going to share the, the 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 revenue um so so where does where does where does big pharma s- situate itself and what does it think about this kind of a model i think big pharma is a business model so if we start something at grassroots and they see that this would be a sustainable model and it would build business i'm sure they would jump into it so but right now they're hesitant they probably are because the model is still not in the mainstream of science yet there are only pockets of people doing this kind of work um there's a big pocket in london uk area there's some pockets in southeast asia like i said thailand um there's one in malaysia so they're doing those kind the sarawak biodiversity center is up there as well so there are all these pockets there's a huge pocket in india that's doing this kind of indigenous work but they all need to be able to publish in these reputed so-called journals and for them to be able to do that they need these collaborations they need the probably the resources 
to make sure that the efficacy is there, the therapeutic potential is there, the lethal dose is there. Uh-huh. They have the ID50. You're able to actually figure out what is the drug efficacy, what is the amount of drug that you need. So all of that, we need some collaboration and resources. You mentioned the Thai example. How does it how does it work in in Thailand? This 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 symbiotic relationship between traditional medicine and and Western medicine. So they have built it as a community center, like a walk-in clinic in many okay. many areas, and in small units. So it's not one giant center, but small units of walk-in clinics where you have complementary medicine with Western medicine working in symbiosis. So now you have people who are proponents of the Western medicine also talking about the complementary medicine as a way to find a pathway. So a physician that that treats you would have, um, would might have complementary traditional medicine and, and Western medicine in, at their disposal to, 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 to offer to you, would yes. they see different? Would they see different physicians? Um, how, does it in, in practice? Does it, uh, or or is, does it rely on doctors to have, kind of two sets of training? Yes, it relies on the physician to have two sets of training. Um, probably they don't have a huge degree on ethnopharmacology, but they have been in the area. They have been exposed to this kind of work. They are aware of the social cultural context, and in some cases, it's also about stepping into the culture. Um, can you take something away from a culture? Can you add something to a culture? And what is the pathway in which you do that also has a lot to play in it. In, in with these with these forest products, um, you have uh, you can have a very complicated set of 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 medicinal outcomes and these complicated mixtures. I think you have a term for it. Um, what are some of the uh, what are some of the kind of uh, multiple kinds of kind of uses that the, these medicinals can have? This is one of the reasons why ethnopharmacology could be challenging because these forest products, as we call them, plant products, can have complex mixtures in them. There can be more than one kind of an item in it, in an alkaloid. So for example, if you look at the folk medicine of ergot in in 1500s, ergot was an alkaloid that was used for women who had uteral pain. And it came from a plant? Yeah. Yeah, it came from a plant. It's an alkaloid plant. And it relieved uterus pain, and it worked. But suddenly, somebody got this idea and says, hey, if I can use that for relieving uteral pain, maybe I can use it to be a birth-accelerating drug. So, and they found out that how can we inc- speed up labor using this? And it didn't work. 
It didn't work as a speed up labor drug, but it worked as a uterine painkiller. Okay. And then they said ergot's not working. Till somebody in 1950s took it upon himself to look, go into the chemistry lab and look at the chemicals inside this ergot alkaloid plant. And they found out that it has this ability for pain suppression, which is a good thing. But now that is why it's used in midwifery. Right now, as we speak, even today, as a fantastic, reliable way of uterine contraction. It's, is it an opioid inhibitor? Is, yes. Is, yeah. But then it also has another piece in it, which is LSD, which is a recreational drug. And then it also has a third piece to it, which is the component, a constituent in it, which can actually act as a prophylactic for migraine headaches. So these are three different chemical constituents. And very different outcomes. <laughs> totally different outcomes inside the same plant. And this is wow. why plant medication without the science of the pharmaceuticals efficacy cannot be integrated into the Western medicine. Because when we titrate all this, we can figure out, oh, this constituency is the one that's causing this. This is the one that's causing that. This is the one that's causing this. So the so I guess the the, the chemists um, they figure out and uh, do you think sitting right under our noses are um, an untold number of of kind of multiple multiple plant benefits that we don't even know? Yes, absolutely, and that's why this deforestation and preserving biodiversity, sustainable practices, are important so that we can not only save our planet, we can save the world, we can make it a better future. Give us a sense of scale. What, what percentage would you say, or or um, how how much of this work has been done compared to what needs to be done? I would say, out of twenty thousand species that WHO has recognized in its in the international convention as medicinal benefit, only two hundred and fifty of them have been characterized in the scientific Western medicine outward. 250 out of out of 20,000. Wow. So, um, and those are the ones that we know of. Yes. The, like the, the, why isn't that being done? I think is awareness. The, I think the first thing for human mind is to be aware. And I think once we are aware, we are able to make those cognitive pathways to improve ourselves. Because we do have the capability, I believe, with our cerebral cortex <laughs> I, I I hope so. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the so the maybe in, 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 in there can be a future in which um, MD PhDs are are thinking about kind of the an entire tool belt of 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 kind of sources for for research sources for medicine mm-hmm. uh, means of testing. Um, do you do you see that is that happening in in Western Anglo uh, medicinal training and medical training, uh, is it happening more? Where where is uh, where do you see the state of the field right now? It's happening in small pockets and places where there is resources and they have the money to support this kind of practices. So that I think is the starting point. Um, Europe has taken up a lot of uh, initiative in doing this, and some places in Asia have already started as part of their training. And in the U.S., we have small pockets that are approaching this. But it's all about, it's, I think it's 
about making that something like some change like this is not going to happen with one big event. It is going to be many small events that have to coagulate together to form one big event. So it's going to be very small mutations as we speak or changes in different parts of the world that will actually create this phenomenon. So it's, we are not looking for some yeah. giant equator crater to happen and then everything will stem from there. It's lots of small determined kind of choices. Yes. Uh, how do you prevent, to be kind of the, the, the cynic here, how do you prevent um, kind of the, the, the snake oil salesman who, who would um, kind of pitch conspiracy theories about everything from vaccination to big pharma, et cetera, and, um, and tout a medicinal option, uh, an herbal option, um, that, that, uh, that, again, that might have efficacy, but remains untested. How do you, how do you navigate that bridge between two sides that are tw- quite suspicious of each other? And I think that's why the publications, collaborations, making sure that you can test some of these products in the labs and putting that word out there in terms of a concrete peer-reviewed journal would bring credibility. And this would take the suspicious Mm. people out of it because now this is how vancomycin got in, right? Because it was reviewed in a lab, it was tested in a lab, it was published in a journal, it was used in some hospital environment. That's how we built our trust. Reproducible, verifiable results, right. like scientific method yeah. type stuff. Yes. Um, that sounds uh, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> and I guess the the is the is the is the, is the establishment um, medical journals are they are they open to, to these publications these ideas uh, if people do the science. There's now journals that are called Frontiers in Ethnopharmacology, Elsevier Pharmacology, Ethnopharmacology. So now they have their own journal brand. And and it is and it's and it's on par with yes. with just a yeah. st- kind of st- same kind yeah. of standards right. and review boards. Mm-hmm. So I guess there there seems to be a framework exists for these things yes. to uh, this this technology transfer to happen across. And there's a lot of reviews written right now, so which is a great thing because now these people who are writing these reviews are bringing in stories from old stories where this kind of ethnopharmacology did exist, but we mm. didn't have any kind of a way to put it in paper. To verify or yes. to... Oh, interesting. So these reviews are serving as a storytelling board about our past and how we didn't make those connections, so now we know we have a framework to make those connections. So, Dr. Vimu, tell us about your... um, What's on What's on the menu for you? What are you What are you working on? What are you What are you going to be focusing on uh, going forward? So I'm looking at um, things like what are some of the sustainable practices that we can do in the Southeast Asia sector, because I come from that area and that's my background. So it's easy for me to go and give back to where I started from. And one of the areas would be in the Borneo. Biodiversity hotspots, because yeah. not only 
it is one of the pristine rainforests in the world to preserve because when you preserve these hotspots, you have done the work of a million years. And that's where we're the starting globalization of this ethnopharmacology should start. Yes, we want to do good in our neighboring area where we live and where the practices are, but those cannot sow as much into the future as going to these biodiversity hotspots and doing it. Like Amazon is one of them. The Mech, Borneo and Amazon are the two exact counterparts of the two parts of the world where we do have that. This question will sound self-serving, but what role do you think disciplines like history and obviously anthropology have to play in uh, ethnopharmacology? Yeah, because this is storytelling, and it is also scientific storytelling, and it's a narrative piece to it, and there's an emotional and a social context to it. And scientists normally don't have any of the others. They're only about data and your numbers, and what does it mean? But having all of these put in place, we can have these interdisciplinary students who can offer their resources to build these practices in that area, which would be very sustainable in the long run because we want everybody being part of this because this is something which is not just for the world health, it's also for people in general, it's for to save the planet. You can go as far as you can go with this little niche that we are trying to create. So if people want to want to find out more, want to uh, interact with you, where can they find you? Can they find you at, at Wabanzi? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm a full-time uh, community college teacher at Wabanzi College. I absolutely enjoy it up there, and I teach microbiology. And I also teach anatomy and physiology, so here's a great way for me to weave what the microbes do in the microbiology class and the anatomy and the physiology, what does it do to the human body? And now mm. we have a new word, which is called microbiome. So microbiome is the microbes that are inside of you. And many of them, or possibly most of them, are actually good for you. Huh. So. The view of microbes just being pathogenic is one part of the world, but there's also the microbiome. And if you want to know more of it, that come to my class. Uh, <laughs> I like to bring in all these new, interesting ways at which you can think about the world in a different way. And these are realistic, cool signs that's happening all over the world. And uh, and maybe maybe summer 2019. Who knows? Uh, we could we could be looking at a at a study abroad, uh, Borneo, a kind of a pharmacology, that'd be great. Yes, study abroad with Wabanzi Community College and go there. That would be cool. All right, well, thank you so much for, for talking to us today, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you again soon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Crossroads would like to thank Joe Kinzer for today's music. And the GU for production assistance. 谢谢您的收听，我们下次再见。